Children are dismissed for Children's Church. The rest of you, please open your Bibles to Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 2. You'll find the notes in the uh, bulletin. Paul's second letter to Timothy. And this week we will be finishing a passage we started last week, which makes up the beginning part, or the first section of Paul's second major um, theme in the book. Give you a little review. Paul is in jail in Rome, awaiting a trial, which church history tells us will pronounce a verdict of execution on him. He'll be taken some miles outside of Rome and beheaded. That's, that's what we know from church history. Paul is at the end of his life, and he's writing to young Timothy. Timothy, either stationed in Ephesus, or recently come from Ephesus. And we saw that starting in chapter 1, verse 3, through all the way through 2.13, is an extended exhortation, an extended treatment on the themes of courage and perseverance, not being ashamed, being willing to suffer, and Paul giving Timothy examples, positive and negative, um, and culminating in the, the fifth trustworthy saying that that, that Formula appears five times in the pastoral epistles um, in, in chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, um, stressing that we must, Timothy must, we all must persevere and continue believing. And then in chapter 2, verse 14, he picks up the second major theme, which is false teaching and its corollary, the truth. And, and that will go all the way through chapter 3 into 4, until Paul finally begins closing the letter with some personal arrangements, um, things he wants Timothy to do. Those are the two major sections of the book. 1-3 through 2-13, and then 2-14 through 4-8. And so we're at the beginning of that, and Paul has been talking about false teaching, and, and last week we looked at the section starting in verse 20 through 28. And we talked about how God here shows us how we can be useful to him, how we can be, make ourselves fit instruments in his hands. And we saw that in verse 20. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house and ready for every good work. We talked about how in this context, the, the good vessels, the useful vessels, the honorable vessels, and the dishonorable is not a contrast between extremely gifted Christians and those normal Christians, but in the context of false teaching, this is between those who are holding true to the word, those who are part of that teaching faithful men who will teach other faithful men, and those who are into error, and so consequently, cleansing yourself is separating yourself from, removing, inspecting yourself to get rid of false teaching, to examine yourself, to make sure your, your faith, your doctrine, your teaching is sound and pure. And we said, if that's the case, if we'll clean our cup, we'll be useful according to this, not just for one task, not for two tasks, but set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And I hope we want to be useful to God in that way. Well, this morning, we're going to look at the, the end of this section, verses 24 to 26, and, and we're going to focus on a use 
the Lord would have us be useful for, which is both probably intimidating to us, and yet one of the most significant things we can do. This morning's message is titled, Setting Captives Free. And it comes from, that phrase comes from a section of Isaiah that Jesus reads in Luke 4, 17 to 19. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news or gospelize the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so this morning, we're to look at the difficult intimidating, the incredibly important responsibility and ministry of helping to be those tools in God's hands who will go and help free people. And the freedom we're going to look at is freedom from error, freedom from sin. And the reason why it's difficult is because that generally involves moving into a conversation that we may not want to have, that may not go well, and so we're scared. And so we're going to see four key components, four principles of giving correction. Let's first read this passage, but that's, that's where we're going. We're, we're going to see how this ministry that Jesus came to do, to free others from bondage, to fr- free others from captivity, and how the Lord would have us do that. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 to 26. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Let's pray. Lord God, I just pray that as we study this passage, you would open our eyes and open our ears and soften our hearts and give us grace. Lord, we want to be those instruments in your hand. We want to be used by you to set others free. We want to be used by you so that you might bring others to repentance, that you might free others from snares that they are caught in. So, so Lord, give us the courage to be willing to hear what you have for us here and give us the grace to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're going to look at this passage in four points. And we're going to look at it a little bit out of order because I think it's most helpful to start where the passage ends. To start where the passage ends. Because in, in the final sections of the passage, we get a very vivid metaphoric picture of the state, of the need. And so we're going to try to, okay, why are we doing this? Why, why would we need to do this? And so our first blank is our responsibility, our responsibility in giving correction. We're trying to create the need. So we're going to start by looking at verse 26. Why would we do this? Why would We certainly don't want to do this, and if you do want to do this, that's probably not a good sign either. Um, well, that, that is the problem, right? There are some of us who are all too ready to go and, ooh, someone's wrong on the internet. Hold my calls, you know. And there's some people like that, and there are other people who the last thing they ever want to do is have a difficult conversation. So, so our responsibility in giving correction, and, and we could give many reasons, but I just want to look at two. The first, to be obedient and useful instruments in the Lord's hands. Obedience. 
That should be enough by itself, obedience. You see, Paul doesn't say a, a pastor has to not do these things. Paul, Paul doesn't say a leader. He simply says the Lord's bondservant, the Lord's slave. Which if, if you're in Christ, identifies you. This, this isn't just for leadership. What Paul is doing is he's taking a truth, a principle, and he's certainly applying it to Timothy, a church leader. And in this context, in 1 Timothy, it most immediately has to do with correcting false teaching and error. But, but the way Paul phrases it is clear. This is a general truth. And so if, if you are the Lord's slave, if you've been redeemed and bought by the master, then this applies to you. And we'll, and we'll see some other passages as we look through this to make that clear as well. And so it's obedience. Why would I do this thing I don't want to do? Why would I do this difficult thing? Because the living God has told me he wants me to do it. And, and helping to set captives free is participating in the very mission and ministry of Jesus. It's what he, after all, in Luke, said he came to do, at least in part. And so we can be obedient, we can follow in our Lord's footsteps, and we can be those instruments in his hand as he can use us to do the very thing that he said, I'm here to do. So we can do it for obedience. But there's a second reason that, that Paul gives here and that's seen in verse 26 with that picture, and that is to help rescue and restore our brother. To help rescue and restore our brother. Now, now look at this word picture. And he may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's the picture of, of trapping an animal, right? Um, I don't know how many of you have seen snares firsthand, but a snare is a small, innocuous um, metal loop that an animal steps in. And when he tries to move, it tightens around his ankle and will eventually cut into the skin and trap it. Some animals caught in snares will actually gnaw their own feet off. But mostly, they just sort of stay put. But it's, it's, it's a pitiful picture of an animal caught in a snare. And what, what Paul is saying is, to whatever degree you or I have blind spots, and all of us have blind spots, I mean, understand that, we all have blind spots, to whatever degree you or I are believing untruth, and we are, mixed in with what we believe is true are, is error, and as we believe error, we will act out error, to whatever degree that we're, we're blinded, um, we're caught in a snare. We are. Understand that. Your brothers and sisters, all of us, in some way or other, are, have, have areas, strongholds, blind spots of thinking and acting and doing that basically equate for Satan to have, a, to have a hand on us. And the effect of being in this snare is being captured by him to do his will. It makes sense, right? Um, if, if somehow you believe that um, stealing is okay, what are you going to do? You're going to steal. You're caught in a snare doing his will. If, if you think um, you know, sex before marriage is okay, as long as you're in a committed and trusting relationship, what are you going to do? You're going to, first opportunity you have, act that out. So, so there's a wrong belief, or maybe there's a justification. You know, it's not a big deal. Um, maybe it's not outright error of doctrine, but maybe it's error about God's holiness and what he thinks about sin. I, I know this is wrong, but it's not a big deal. God will forgive me. I mean, I've been good. But there's some error, there's some lie, there's some untruth that, that we're believing in some areas, and it's leading us to act in ways that don't please God, but carry out the will of the devil. 
It's odd to think of that, isn't it? But to whatever area that we are thinking wrong and believing wrong and, and, and coming up with wrong justifications for what we're doing, we are in some sense caught in a snare and we are in some sense carrying out the devil's will. And so the picture here is that God can use us to help free those snares, to help free our brothers, that we can do that to each other. And this is something we need each other for because we all have blind spots and by the very nature of a blind spot, you don't see it. And, and I could have easily made a third point here, but this is loving. You picture that animal caught in a snare, whimpering, and two people looking at it, and, and one says, it might bite me. It might claw. I might get dirty. Yeah, you know, I'm just going to leave it there. And the other person goes in and, and gets down on his hands and knees and tries to take it off, and sure, he may get scratched and he may get bit, but which person loved that animal? There's no question, right? There's no question. And some animals, once they're caught in a snare, they might even be at peace. So you might say to yourself, you know, that animal looks more happy right now. He's calm. And if I approach it, it might get really nervous and upset and its hair might stand up. I, for the sake of peace, I'm going to leave it in the snare. No, no, none of us would do that. And none of us would mistake that for love. Let me give you some other passages that talk about this, the significance of this role we have in helping to correct, helping to, to free each other from areas of wrong thinking. Listen to James 5, 19 to 20. I want to show you the stakes are high. This is important. This is necessary. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That kind of sounds like a big deal to me. Or listen to the language of Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a trespass, pause there. The word for caught there means to be sort of overtaken or ambushed. It's a similar picture to the snare, to be caught unawares. If any of you are caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ." You mean, you mean fulfilling and not fulfilling the law of Christ is a matter of whether or not I'm willing to help restore my brother if they're overcome, if they're overtaken in something? Yes. So James, save a soul from death, cover a multitude of sins. Galatians, fulfill the law of Christ. Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins... Go and tell him his fault between you and him. If he listens to you, you have gained, you have won your brother. It's about winning a brother. It's about saving a soul from death. It's about freeing captives. It's about fulfilling the law of Christ. This is no small thing. And so I know it's difficult, and I know it's uneasy, and that's why I put this point first, because I want you to see the need. I want you to see what's at stake. I want you to see this the way the Lord sees this. The Lord is not primarily interested in us being happy. He's interested in us being holy. And oftentimes, in the name of keeping the peace, we will let people that we see in snares stay in snares. And it is not out of love that we do that. And it is not something that pleases God. It's our responsibility. 
when the Lord shows me a spot on your blind side, I have a responsibility in love to let myself be used by him as that tool in his hand. So that's our responsibility. Now, the good news is there's more instruction how to do this, what this looks like, and we're going to end on a high note with some hope. But that's the responsibility. Keep that in mind. I want you to picture that little whimpering animal. I want you to picture that, that poor, pathetic animal with a, with a red, bloody line around its ankle trying to impotently hop away, move away, unable to. And, and get a heart of compassion and a heart of love that says, even if I get scratched, even if I get tussled, I'm going to love this person by, by helping to free them. Well, the second thing we're going to look at, and now we're going back to verse 24, is our attitude in giving correction. See, just because we've established, well, there is a responsibility to lovingly correct, doesn't mean we can just do it willy-nilly however we want. Paul is very emphatic about the heart and the attitude involved in doing this. So our attitude now in giving correction and coming on the heels of verse 23, where he talks about how um, these controversies breed quarrels. He says, but the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. You see, see maybe there are some of us who, who like a good fight, who like a good argument. Do you ever feel yourself spoiling for a fight? That's not the way we're supposed to do this. Um, in some sense, then, it is very right for us to feel hesitation, for us to feel, I don't really want to do this. For that to be in your heart, that, that's right. That's better than, oh boy, I get to go, you know, confront um, Anthony. Whoo! No, that, that's, that's not a sign of a healthy attitude, okay? Um, that is not a sign of the Spirit. The Lord's bondservant is not quarrelsome. And he's also willing to be wronged. Um, and of course, I think that's probably one of the big reasons we don't want to go. I mean, if every time we went, I mean, just, just, just play game with me for a second. If every time you were to talk to someone about something and say, hey, excuse me, um, I, I think you haven't caught this. If every time you did that, they gave you a hug, a kiss on the cheek, and thanked you and changed, who here would hesitate to do that? Right? So why don't we want to go? Why do we get nervous? Because they might bite and kick and claw, Right? Or I might mess up and be a jerk too, and then now we're having a claw match. And, and that's where I think this picture of the animal is, is very appropriate. Um, I know that I had a dog who was stuck once, and I was trying to free it, and he started snipping at me. This dog loves me, right? Animals don't lick you and thank you when you try to free them from snares. They, they, they're, they're confused. They are not in their right minds. And what do they do? They just claw and lash and bite and kick. And so, yeah, if, if you're going to try to free someone, that might happen. We don't like that happening. And so we come up with good sanctified reasons not to do this. Instead, the Lord's bondservant is willing to be wronged. Paul's already covered that, right? Repeatedly, Timothy, Sharon's suffering. Timothy, don't, don't be afraid. The spirit God's given you is not one of fear. Not quarrelsome, willing to be wronged. And this is a sign of love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It keeps no record of wrongs. Not a jerk. And, not willing to be, not, and willing to be wronged. 
I mean, really, at the end of the day, that's, that's the decision you've got to make. Am I concerned more about my comfort and safety or theirs? You know, oftentimes, we think of hatred as, I want that person to die. I'm so angry. Biblically, that's not hatred. That's, that's anger and murder. A heart of murder wants to kill. The picture of hatred, which is the opposite of love, is given most clearly by Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? Who's the one who loved his neighbor? The guy who went and put him on his horse. And who in the parable are the ones who did not love and therefore hated? Because there's no third position where you're not loving or hating. You're just sort of being. That's not an option. They just walked by. I might get my clothes dirty. That's, that's going to that's gonna mess up my schedule for the week. Right? That's hatred. Hatred is I don't care enough about you to help you. I don't care enough about you to love you. I don't care enough about you to get involved. If that's your attitude to someone, you hate them. That, that's biblical hatred. Um, it's just, it's too, it's, I can't be bothered. They'll never listen to me. I mean, the last time I tried to talk to them, they bit my head off. No, no. I'm worried about my own comfort. And I'm just like the, uh, the Levite. I'm just like the, the, the Pharisee who walks by. Not quarrelsome, willing to be wronged. And, and we've got to go with gentleness and patience and humility. You see that all there. The Lord's bondservant servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Gentleness and patience and meekness. And this is another reason why it's important for us to get this on conviction, because I've, I've heard it said before by one of my um, pastors that generally speaking, people aren't willing to do this because it's difficult and because it's not something we want to do. And so we generally wait until we're angry. We generally wait until we're provoked. And that's generally when we don't go with gentleness, patience, and humility. In fact, the, the simple way of remembering it is this. He with the sore toes goes. He with the sore toes goes. And the problem is that begins to sort of reinforce a cycle of, man, going and talking to someone about something isn't good. Why isn't it good? Because every time I've done it, it's gone poorly. Well, did you wait till you got angry every other time? Yep. Maybe that's why it went poorly. And so you can't wait until that's the last straw and, you know, and, and, and then go. You got to go with your spirit under control in gentleness with patience and humility. We saw that in Galatians. Um, it tur turn to Galatians 6 real fast. I want you to see something else there. Very similar concepts in these two passages. Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual, notice again the qualification here is simply spiritual, not leaders, not elders, not pastors, just you are spiritual. You who have the spirit should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. I want you to catch this in verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, the first dozen times I read that, I didn't get what the four was there for. And if you think about it, I want you to catch this. What Paul is saying is this. 
what is going to stop you from restoring, and what's going to stop you from getting down there and bearing someone else's burdens is thinking too much of yourself. I mean, after all, they got themselves into this mess. They can get themselves out of it. I mean, I don't have to struggle with that. I don't know why they do. I don't know why they let it get this bad. What am, what am I doing? I'm, I'm, I'm like that public, I'm like the Pharisee who praises God that he's not like the publican. I, I think too much of myself. What's, what's also going to stop me from going and talking to my brother? Pride. Masked in self-righteousness. Bear one another's burdens, fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. We've got to go love our brother. We've got to do it with the right attitude. Not quarrelsome, willing to be wronged, but gentleness and patience and humility. Third, we also have to first remove any logs from our own eyes. After first removing any logs from our own eyes. In a very familiar passage in Matthew 7, which is now sadly the most quoted and familiar verse to every unbeliever out there, used to be John 3.16. Now... What is it? You can just say it, right? If you talk to an unbeliever, what are they going to say? They're going to say, judge not, lest ye be judged. Let's keep reading. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, and when there's a log in your own eye, you hypocrite, first, Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, Jesus has no problem with brothers and sisters taking specks out of each other's eyes. That's not the issue here. And when the unbeliever or when, the, um, when we quote just the first phrase of this verse as if somehow the Lord doesn't want us ever to be discerning, and no, that's not the case at all. The whole passage is, is rebuking hypocritical, double standard judgment. And Jesus says, look, once you get your own house in order and once you're dealing with the sin in your life and once you're not being a hypocrite, then absolutely go help your brother with what's in his eye. But we've got to remove logs out of our own eyes. Maybe another reason we don't like to do this is because our own life isn't in order. Maybe we know if we went and talked to someone, they could point to five things in our life that aren't where they should be. These are all reasons to keep us from going. Fear of being hurt. A desire to make a fake peace and just sort of keep things in the status quo. Self-righteousness. I mean, it's going to take some time and it could get messy. Or maybe, I won't mention your sin if you don't mention my sin. Deal? We can sort of have that implicit arrangement with other people. So we've got the right attitude and we've got to do it in the right way. Third, Let's look at our tools in giving correction. Our tools in giving correction. So we've covered the need, why it needs to be done. We've covered the hard attitude. Now, what actually is this and how do we do it if we're going to do it? And we see that in the phrase able to teach and correcting. Um, the first point, we must appeal to the Scripture. We must appeal to the Scripture. You see, what you, it's so... We can be tempted when we're appealing with our, our brothers and sisters to appeal to something else. We can appeal to self-value. We can appeal to the fear of man. Do you, do you want others? What, what, what would your mom know? What would your mom think if she knew? You know, we, we can appeal to that. 
We can, we can appeal to manipulation. You know, it makes God sad. It makes me sad. No, able to teach. We've heard that phrase before in 1 Timothy 3. And it's the scriptures. T- turn in 2 Timothy over a chapter. It's the scriptures that Paul, using the same word, says are competent, are sufficient, are powerful for, look at it in verse 16, all scripture of chapter 3 is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. It's not for nothing that, that Paul says the Lord's slave, the Lord's servant, must be able to teach when he's correcting. And he then later, in a chapter later, says, and we've got a word which is competent for that. See, we're bringing the word of God to bear. We're not bringing my opinion. We're not bringing Dr. Phil. We're not bringing manipulation or bribery or whatever else we might use to try to get someone to change what they're doing. We're bringing the word of God. We're bringing the sharp two-edged sword, which is able to divide between the bones and marrow, joint and sinew, and lay the heart bare able to teach. We must be appeal to Scripture. And second, in our appeal to Scripture, what does correcting mean? What, is, what does it mean to correct? Correcting his opponents. What does that mean? The word has a broad usage. It, it literally means to school, to be a schoolmaster, to be an instructor. And Paul has used it twice in, in the pastorals. I want, you to, I want you to catch these two usages. You'll start to get the spectrum. We saw it in Titus 2.12, where the grace of God has appeared, training us, there's the word, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the pleasant, present age. We talked about being in the school of grace, the school of Christ, same word, training. It's also used, though, in 1 Timothy 1.20, when he talks about disciplining Hymenaeus and Alexander. Among whom, he says, are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. They may learn not to blaspheme. In 1 Corinthians 11.32, he uses it this way. 1 Corinthians, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. There it is. You're disciplined. So it may not be condemned along with the world. When, when Pilate offers to release Jesus after disciplining him, same word. So, so it's, it's a word that can mean to school. And, and if you get rid of thoughts of modern day school where teachers um, can't even touch a child, which I'm not saying is a bad thing, but, and you understand the notion of a teacher in a school was 50 years, 100 years ago, or 2,000 years ago, you, you recognize that exercise of authority. Um, that there could be discipline, there could be, a, it's an authoritative teaching. Um, so, so this has a spectrum of meaning to correct. In the context, though, it's clear from what follows that it's correction because there's repentance that we're hoping for. This isn't about adding something to someone's knowledge. This isn't about, um, hey, I thought you might want to know. But the blanks here, correction equals, I think there's three things that are involved in this. One, instruction instruction. Two, exhortation. And three, appeal. Appeal. I think this means instruction, exhortation, and appeal. Let's walk through that. 
Instruction is content. Again, you've heard me say this over and over and over, but it's true for all of us. You shouldn't care what I think unless you know why I think it. And likewise, if you're going to someone and you think there's something amiss in their life and you are trying to correct them, your opinion doesn't matter. It can't bind their conscience. What matters is what God has said. And there has to be some ability to communicate that. Instruction. But if we just left it there, it would just be like a little lesson. Like, oh, by the way, I don't know if you know this. The Bible says thou shalt not steal. Do, do what you want with it. Just thought you might want to know that. You know? And that's, that's not what this is talking about. Because um, there's got to be exhortation. And that is where you are exhorting is encouraging someone to, to appropriate, telling them to do something. I, I exhort you to pursue after Christ. You must, you need to. I'm exhorting when I say this. An exhortation is where I attempt to engage your will, where I attempt to motivate you, where I'm calling on you, and it sort of rounds the corner into appeal, where I'm calling on a response. So there's instruction. And this can take all sorts of different forms in all sorts of different contexts. I'm trying to identify the three pieces that I think need to be present. There needs to be some communication of God's truth. There needs to be some passion. It's not just dispassionate. This is because I care for you, because I love you. There's exhortation and there's an appeal. There's a call for response. And, and I want to talk about something else here, um, which is that this will likely offend. So even though Paul has said, be gentle, don't be quarrelsome, be meek and be patient, you have not necessarily failed if the person is angry. Because necessarily what you are doing when you do this is saying, I, I believe you're wrong. And if, if you're not aware, if I came in here this morning with a big patch of mud on the back of my jacket, and I'm unaware of it, and you say, hey, hey, Jeremy, it's a big patch of mud on the back of your jacket, that initial news is not going to please me, is it? I will feel foolish. I'll feel vulnerable. I will feel ashamed. And you knew, and I've been walking around here shaking hands with this big thing of mud on my back. And, you know, I could be tempted to not respond kindly. You've really done me a kindness. You're helping me to not make a fool of myself even more. But, and so, so to come to someone, and as nicely as you can, to implicitly make it clear, I, I think you were wrong. I think God's word says that you've done or you were thinking or you were believing or you were doing something wrong, and I'm calling on you to change. Well, in some sense, you're taking that schoolmaster position. There's an aspect in which you're coming, um, not as their equal, but slightly over them. Because here's what God's word says. You're not the authority, but you're bringing the authority, the word of God, and you're applying it to them. And it's clear you think something needs to change. And, and so this can take many types of forms, and there's a spectrum. But, but until you've communicated to someone what God's word says, until you've given them an exhortation to apply and made some appeal on them to change, you haven't done this. I'll, I'll give you a story from my own life. Um, a, a close friend of mine about 10 years ago I was having lunch with, and I was sharing, I was doing what Christians do when our conscience bothers us, but we don't want to repent. I'll, I'll give you some insight. This isn't, this isn't something you should learn, but maybe you're sinful like I am, and this will resonate. But sometimes when my conscience is bugging me, but I'm not really ready to, to repent, I'll do certain things to sort of placate my conscience. And one of the things I'll do is I'll just sort of share this with somebody. I'll share what I'm struggling with with somebody. And the way it placates my conscience is, well, I've done something. I've asked for prayer. 
And so I'm sitting, having lunch, and I'm sharing the situation of what's going on and, and what, what I'm struggling with and, and how it's bearing bad fruit. And my friend is sitting there, and he smiles, and he says, yeah, yeah, that isn't good, is it? I go, no. And he goes, you know, are you going to do anything about it? And I said, classic Christian response when you're trying to dodge something. I need to pray about it. Oh, come on. Tell me you've never done that. <laughs> tell me you've never dodged conviction by saying, yeah, pray for me. I need to pray about that. You know, no, you don't need to pray about it. You need, you need to go pay the guy the $5. You know, yeah, I need to pray about that. Um, I need to seek the Lord. You've got all sorts of great slogans to dodge conviction. And so my friend was very gentle in his appeal. And I sloughed it off like water off a duck's back. I get back to my room and I check my email. And the gentleness went up, went down. Well, the, the, the clarity rose and the gentleness dropped. It was a much more clear communication. It said, look, brother, um, you've just related to me some sin in your life. And this sin is affecting other people. And it will necessarily affect the entire body of Christ because according to Ephesians, when enemy, the body only grows when every joint and every um, ligament is functioning properly. There's a lot at stake in this. It's not a little sin. And um, I'm pleading with you to, to repent and turn from it. And when I see you on Thursday, I'm going to ask you um, what you've decided to do. Oh, that, that, that got through my... my my resistance, and in God's grace, it did the trick. And so, yeah, maybe this can be as simple as just, you know, hey, have you thought about, and sometimes it might need to be something a bit more clear and direct, but God is calling us to do this because holiness and Christ-likeness is more important than our immediate comfort and our immediate peace. Um, it, It is more important. We're calling on them to receive and obey the truth instructing, exhorting, and appealing. Notice again in in verse 26 and 25 that the result of this is repentance. We're calling on people to repent. Um, And so there's a balance there because we want to be gentle, we want to be kind, but sometimes we can be so gentle and so kind that no one really understood that we've called them to repent of anything. Um, and And I do believe the Lord will give us wisdom as we try to figure and flesh that out. Receive and obey the truth. In fact, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Because I believe that somehow these things coexist. That we can be clear, we can be in some degrees firm, be loving and kind. Listen to this charge. Probably one of the single most lofty charges in the scripture. I don't know what else Paul could have brought to bear here in chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so it's that balance of reproving, rebuking, exhorting with patience. Apparently it can be done. And that's the wisdom and the balance we need to strike. This is what God is calling on us to do. And we don't enjoy the discomfort it causes people, but we feel the way Paul does in in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, where he says, I regret that I made you sorry, but I don't regret that anymore because I see that you sorrowed in a godly manner that led to repentance. 
And one last word before we move on to our last point. This is a kindness. If, if you find yourself on the other end of this, if someone's coming to you, if, if after this sermon gets done, you know, somebody makes a beeline for you, you're like, oh, no. Um, and I've already unmasked your first you know, defense attempt of, I'll pray about that. You know, now, that now everyone's on to you. Now everyone's on to you. I would just, I just want, I want you to listen to Psalm 141.5, okay? Listen to this. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. I think sometimes we can, we can think, well, sometimes we're kind and sometimes we deal with sin. Sometimes we're kind, and sometimes we confront people. No, Psalm 141.5, let a righteous man strike me, it is kindness. There, there is no dichotomy between the two. And so if, if somebody is, is coming to you this Sunday you're at lunch or after church or something, and they're trying to put this sermon into application, I would encourage you to not let your head refuse it. Psalm 141.5, a great verse to remember. Um, it's so easy to, to feel trapped, to feel cornered, to get your fur up and get the fangs and the claws out. And, and no, no, no. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let my head not refuse it. Okay. Finally, let's look at our hope in giving correction. Our hope in giving correction. And this is probably the most significant part of the passage. Because Paul has laid out our responsibility clearly. He's told us what he wants to do. He told us how he wants us to do it. He told us why he wants us to do it. Now, our hope in giving correction. Point one, we act in hopes that the Lord will act. We act in hopes that the Lord will act. Notice that. God is telling us that what we need to be faithful about, what we need to be about is the portion of this given to us. Faithfully, going and talking to people who are in error, correcting giving truth in love. And notice what God says he's in charge of. He's in charge of their response. We act in the hopes that the Lord will act, which in part means we, we can't take God's job from him. We can only be obedient in faith, hope, trusting and hoping that he will act. In some sense, we're in this situation of the Israelites marching around Jericho. Hey, just obey me. Do what I say. I will act, the Lord says. Okay, Lord, this looks kind of silly and counterintuitive. That's okay. Be obedient. We act in the hopes that the Lord will act because God grants repentance. And this is wonderful. It's not even based on this passage a matter of what the other person does, their response. Rather, it says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. God may do something. So on the one hand, when you're tempted to think they won't listen to me, you're right, they won't. They won't hear me. No, they won't. Unless God does something. Right? And God says, don't you worry about that. I'm, I'm taking care of their response. You just worry about the first part of this verse. So our hope is that God will act. And, and this is one of the reasons why I love the doctrine of the sovereignty of God because it gives me boldness and confidence to act because my God can do anything. It doesn't ultimately depend on me and it doesn't ultimately even depend on you what your response is going to be. 
depends on the living God. And this is no new teaching in the New Testament. Listen to the language of Acts 11.18 when Peter comes back to the Jerusalem council to report how Cornelius and his family believed and received the Spirit. When the council heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God grants repentance. So yes, this is a hopeless endeavor unless the living God gives grace. But you know what? The living God has revealed that he loves to give grace. And so we act in hope. So it undercuts on the one side an excuse from our part, which is, you know, every time I talk to Bob, Bob tells me to get lost, so I'm not going to go talk to Bob because Bob won't listen to me. Well, will he listen to you if the living God gives grace? You know, and, and this is what gets convicting for me. This verse has got a lot of mileage in my life over the years because I, I don't like conflict. I don't like going and having hard conversations with people, but, you know, a little... You know, the Holy Spirit, I think, will whisper in my ear. And this is, this is what happens. This is what gets me moving a lot of times. I'll, I'll have this conversation in my head. And I probably shouldn't describe this to the Holy Spirit. It'll just maybe. But this is the conversation. Regardless, this is a conversation I have with myself. Jeremy, if an angel from the Lord appeared to you right now and said, if you go talk to Bob, Bob will thank you. He will repent. He'll be restored. And the body will grow. Would you have the slightest hesitation in going? And of course, the answer is no. So basically, all of my hesitation in doing this is because I want to speculate about what God's going to do or not do. Ah, God's not likely to do that. He'll never give grace. <laughs> There's somebody else who kind of talked like that. I think it was Jonah. No. Um, and which is point B, we must not guess what the Lord will do. The Lord does not want us to prognosticate his actions. He doesn't want us setting up, you know, um, uh, charts with the probabilities. Three to one odds, the Lord won't give grace. No, no, and that sounds ridiculous. And you say it, and you're like, that's foolish. But we do that, don't we? Because we do say things like, oh, he'll never listen to me. It's useless talking to him. Really? I thought there was a living God. Deuteronomy 29 says, 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us. See, you know which part of this verse belongs to us, right? The part that tells us to do stuff. Well, it all belongs to us. The other part says, hey, guess what? I'm not going to tell you whether or not God's going to act. He may. It's one of those secret things. So if I go talk to, to my family member, if I go talk to my friend, will they listen? They may. The secret things belong to the Lord. The things revealed belong to me that we may do all the words of this law. God doesn't need us guessing at what he is likely to do or not do, at whether he is likely to give grace or not give grace, because his ways are not our ways. Who's given counsel to him? I know the Lord pretty well. I don't, I don't think he's going to do anything. <laughs> I wouldn't want to dare say that. Point three, we, must, we rejoice knowing that God can change the hardest heart. You know how I know that? Because he changed mine. And I know some of you... <laughs> And I know God can do this. He's changed our hearts. He changes hearts. And I want to just close by looking through a couple of passages. I want you to see this. I want you to turn to Jeremiah 32. Then we're going to look at Ezekiel 36. We'll end up in Acts and we'll be done. I delight in the sovereignty of God over all things, especially salvation, because 
God can do what we can't do. Now, if we'd started reading Jeremiah from the beginning, which would have taken us a long time, you would have repeatedly seen commands in Jeremiah. Circumcise your heart. Change your heart, O Israel. I hope you know by now that's an impossible task. But then, in Jeremiah 32, there's an amazing statement. I want to give you hope. Because if, if the Lord, I want, I, want, I want you to frame it this way. If the Lord has allowed you in his providence to see a weakness in a brother or sister, to see an error, and if the Lord has put upon your heart and you've heard this message and you've seen this word and you know, I got to go, why not hope and trust the Lord has orchestrated this for good and not for evil? Listen to Jeremiah 32, starting in verse 36. Now therefore says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon. So basically, this is after the Babylonian um, has taken over. Babylon has taken over. Verse 37. I will gather them from all countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may, make, that they may fear me forever. Notice that. It's not they'll fear me and I'll give them a new heart. It's I'll give them a new heart so they fear me. See this, we're not looking at an exercise of the free will of Israel. We're looking at a sovereign God doing a heart transplant, creating the fear of him. I'll give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children. And I will make with them an everlasting covenant. And I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. You see that? God can do this. He does this. And if, you, and if you're in Christ today, he has done this. Turn, turn over to Ezekiel. Turn over to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36. And again, in Ezekiel, I could show you repeatedly this, this impossible command. Make for yourself a new heart and a new spirit, O Israel. Earlier in chapter 8, he says that. Make for yourself a new heart and a new spirit. When I read that, I said, good night. I can't do that. Then you get to 36. Therefore, verse 22, let's start in 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, that it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. For the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to, from which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be cleaned from all your uncleanness and your idols. And I will cleanse you and I will give Give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. This is the new covenant that God promises to Israel that we are recipients of by virtue of being grafted into that tree. 
The Lord loves doing heart transplants. The Lord loves granting life. The Lord loves granting repentance. And just give you one example in, in Scripture. You don't even need to turn there, but listen to the language of Lydia's conversion. Lydia, Acts 16, 14. One who heard us, Luke writes, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Here's how the ESV translates it. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The New American Standard says the Lord opened her heart to respond. And see, you can go to somebody in hopes because if God doesn't do that, there's no amount of, there's no amount of, of appealing, and there's no amount of emotiveness, and there's no amount of tears, and there's no amount of perfectly saying it, and there's no amount of anything that's going to get a response. But if God does that, if God does that, and we're even close to the mark, good things are going to happen. Good things are going to happen because our hope is God will act in our acting. And we rejoice in knowing that God can change the hardest heart. I want to give you hope. If you, if you, maybe there's some conversations you need to have with some people. Go in hope. Don't go fatalistically. Okay, well, Pastor Jeremy's guilted me into this. Go with hope. If you're saved today, it's because God gave you a new heart because he already did that to you. And we know and believe he can do it again and again and again. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And we thank you that you have softened our hearts, that you have given us hearts of flesh, Lord. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that you have not done that work in their heart, that even now, Lord, while we're praying, that you would give a new heart, that you would remove the heart of stone, that you would grant life and light in our midst, that you would open blind eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up. Look to him in faith. Lord, we pray that you would give us boldness and courage as we carry this exhortation out, as we, with fear and trepidation, speak to our brothers and sisters for their good and for your glory. Oh, Lord God, act in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much. You are dismissed.